Pope Francis attacked unfettered capitalism as a new tyranny. Pope Francis went further than previous comments criticizing the global economic system, attacking the idolatry of money. But regardless what this is, somebody has either written this for him or gotten to him. This is just pure Marxism coming out of the mouth of the Pope. Yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm a little concerned about um, who this Pope is, and I, um, I've gone back and forth on this. We've talked about it. I think most people are, um, are a little concerned. If you pay attention to what is really going on, if you know anything about liberation theology, if you know that it came from his part of the world, he makes me a little concerned on his, his Marxist tendencies. The Holy Father is a challenge for traditionalist Roman Catholics. This particular pope, who has proclaimed himself a Peronist, is somewhere between a communist with a lowercase c and a Marxist with an uppercase m. At the same time, he's trying to be a Roman Catholic, uppercase r, uppercase c. Welcome to the Magnificast, and a happy 10-year anniversary to our big Leninist, Marxist, Peronist, Communist, lowercase c, uppercase m, Marxist Pope, Pope Francis. Uh, I'm your co-host for the week, Dean Detloff. I'm your other co-host, Matt Bernico. Usually our intro has uh, the voices of previous guests, and uh, this is, has a really diabolical energy to it, I gotta say. <laughs> I agree, but kudos to you for actually listening to those clips enough to pare them down in such a way that it's not eight minutes of Rush Limbaugh uh, trying to explain Gramsci to you. <laughs> Here's the thing. I pick three quotes from three stupid uh, pundits, and I could have found 50. This is such a stupid <laughs> thing. I can't stand it. Um, but they're out there. They love calling uh, Pope Francis a Marxist. It's their favorite pastime of the past 10 years. Yeah, you know, as you can tell already, dear listener, this is going to be an episode about Pope Francis's big decade, our 10 years of having uh, uh, the big guy in the big hat be a guy from Argentina. And there's lots to say about it, lots of interesting things to say. But, you know, when we were thinking about this episode, uh, we were remembering these kinds of clips. I think the the Rush Limbaugh one is the one that always sticks out for me, but that was 2014, I think, or 13. Pretty fresh, anyway. And it's kind of wild to, like, transport myself back to that world where people were like, yeah, the Pope, he's a Marxist. He's from Latin America. Some pretty racist insinuations in there, yeah, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, uh, great. Yeah, but anyway, just uh, wild to be like, Pope Francis really came out of the gates getting called a Marxist already. Yeah, that's the thing. If you're even a little bit to the left, people are going to call you a Marxist. And uh, the thing is, if they're going to call you that, you might as well just be one, you know? There's worse things to be called. That's what I have to say. That's true. Um, Pope Francis, though, know, not taking that route, unfortunately. <laughs> he's not. No, he's not. Uh, planting some seeds, maybe. As you heard, you know, Francis has been a, a polarizing figure, to say the least. And even before, the kind of latest rounds of accusations of polarization have been flung at him. Right in the beginning, he was accused of dividing the church or putting this really radical energy into it. On the right, people say that he's a Marxist. On the left, though, on the other hand, people say that he hasn't been the reformer that he seemed to be or could have done more or hasn't been moving at the pace that people want or that marginalized people need is maybe even a better way of putting it. And there's a lot of things to say about both of those sides of uh, the debate <laughs> around Pope Francis. Uh, so we thought, what could you possibly say on a podcast 
about Christianity and leftist politics about Pope Francis 10 years down the line. We're not exactly sure, but we are going to find out together uh, what the the official Magnificat's take, I guess, on Pope Francis might be. I can't wait to see what it is. I'm sure it's fine. I'm sure it's fine. I'm sure some other people have said it better, and we're even going to include a few of them in the episode. We went and we found out what Leonardo Boff had to say. We looked at some of the reporting. There's tons of articles. If you're on the internet at all, and like me, have an extremely broken Twitter feed full of like very niche Catholic outlets. Basically, everybody put together a sort of 10 years of Pope Francis collection of articles, either like recent stuff of people reflecting on the decade or reporting from the past decade that reflects what's been going on with Pope Francis. So you can read all that. I think the best stuff is at Commonweal and National Catholic Reporter. There's some good stuff in America. Um, And you kind of have to sift through, you know, Every outlet has its ups and downs, so the quality of takes may vary, <laughs> to put it lightly. The NCR did get Nancy Pelosi to write an essay about Pope Francis. I think that was a misstep, but not for me to say. Um, anyway. Uh, <laughs> you just did. You did it, though. Just the same. I, well, it's not for me, but I did say it. That's true. Yeah. I, I mean, there's lots of people talking about it. There's a lot of buzz, and I think it is going to be interesting to see what else happens, but... We've talked about Pope Francis a bunch of times. This is like the mega Pope news episode, I guess, on the podcast. Matt, let's see. I have a lot of thoughts about it because I'm a Catholic and I have to think about it a lot. But I'm actually curious to hear what you think about Pope Francis being a guy, you know, in the the broader Catholic tradition and not the Roman Catholic tradition. Uh, (laughs) What what does this big Pope mean to you? Yeah, you know, to me, this big pope and his big hat and he's in the big chair. I don't know what he is to me. He's just a guy. I mean, being Anglican means that the Bishop of Rome hath no authority here in many areas. I think that he still has a lot of wisdom and has a lot of nice things to say. And uh, I think activate a lot of parts of the Christian tradition that, uh, you know, might not get activated so often in the Anglican world. So I, I think that's good. Um, you know, other places he's definitely deficient. <laughs> and we can talk about those too. <laughs> the things that have really stuck with me the most are the encyclicals and uh, the way that he's worked out some of the like broad Christian logics around social issues and climate change. I think those have been really important to me and hopefully they're important to other people too. I mean, whatever. If you are like me and you're a Protestant, maybe this episode will be <laughs> like kind of a wash for you. But still, I think it's kind of worth talking about because this isn't just going to be like reflecting on Pope Francis and whether or not we think he's good. But this is also, I think, kind of about the ways that people talk about Pope Francis as well, like the rhetoric surrounding him. I think that's actually pretty interesting because you can see the ways that people on the right have their underwear in a bunch about this guy. And um, that's exciting. Uh, I love seeing people on the right with their underwear in a bunch. That's very fun. Yeah, they're always picking at it. looks pretty uncomfortable. Um, that is, I think, good to hear, uh, at least that Pope Francis, I think, is resonating outside of the Catholic Church. I think that's true. You know, the one thing that we do have going for us in the Catholic Church is we have, for better and for worse, a kind of like moral center of gravity, maybe in ways that other Christians don't, or it's not as like recognizable. Like the Pope is there and he speaks on behalf of the rest of us in ways that are sometimes extremely frustrating yeah. and other times very helpful and cool. Um, so when the Pope says something like hands off Africa in the democratic Republic of the Congo, you can be like, yeah, he did it. And that's what we are going to say. Um, and when he says something that you don't like, like gender ideology is like a nuclear bomb or whatever, it's like, okay, please don't do that. <laughs> so uh, all that to say though, it has been 10 years of a lot of, extremely headline grabbing things and what you were just saying Matt, about like the way people talk about Pope Francis. I think that is even more interesting than Pope Francis himself. 
Um, he is like a media pope in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. I mean, John Paul II was also a media pope, but Pope Francis is that even more so, I think. And I think that he kind of knows that too. Like he almost feels like he's aware of the soundbitey nature of the things that he says. Yeah. And, you know, he's the he's the postmodern pope, the pope for the 21st century, the Internet pope. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And, you know, there's a lot to consider with that as like a as a form in the world and of of media and discourse and stuff. But also, I think that there's a way that Pope Francis has a sort of moral voice in the world that I don't think anyone from any other Christian denomination has. If Justin Welby came out and said something about climate change or about Africa, I wouldn't care. <laughs> it would not make a difference to me. <laughs> and uh, if anybody reported on it, I would keep scrolling because who cares? But if Pope Francis does it, I think it, it carries more mm. weight for people, maybe because of just the media machine, maybe because Pope Francis has some kind of like moral legitimacy in ways that Justin Welby doesn't. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I don't know exactly why that is. Maybe I'll figure it out by the end of this episode, but who knows? Well, Dean, as a as a papist, um, can you tell me maybe like what are the high points of Pope Francis's reign? Is that it? Is that what he's doing? Is he in office? I don't know how to talk about this exactly. Um, but yeah, w- what's it look like? Yep. Um, I think it looks pretty good. That will be my my basic judgment. Um, lots of things that we can talk about more later to complicate that statement, but. I think it's really important to try to understand the ways that Pope Francis has intervened in global Catholicism. And I think some of us understand that, some of us being like Catholics, (laughs) some of us understand that um, it's harder to see maybe in the global north, like you have to sort of work to figure it out. Um, And some journalists, I think, are good at pulling it out. But, you know, it's it's not as present in the media, like the headline grabbing stuff, the stuff that's going to get Rush Limbaugh talking or would get him talking if he wasn't dead now, Um, maybe Glenn Beck or whomever. Uh, That kind of stuff is actually kind of secondary to some of the more interesting things Pope Francis has been doing. And maybe I'll talk a little bit about that to get us started. Um, You know, Pope Francis inherited a pretty complicated situation. Um, John Paul II and Benedict XVI both had a pretty particular vision for the church, and it was a disciplinary vision and... You know, we talked about it on the show all the time. They uh, they did a lot to provoke and discipline people in the global south, especially. So having Pope Francis be the first pope from the global south, I think, has been a pretty massive thing in and of itself. Uh, he has rehabilitated liberation theology in a lot of ways. Um, you know, our fave on this podcast, Ernesto Cardinal, for example, he was restored, his priesthood was restored before he died. The same with uh, Miguel Descoto, another Sandinista priest. Um, and I think Pope Francis has been like actively seeking chances to rebuild some bridges that the previous two papacies had like almost intentionally burned, <laughs> you know, um, and that's like a really big deal. Uh, we can talk about some more of the like writings and things like that in a minute, too, because there's an ideological piece of it. But I think almost at like a managerial level or a diplomatic level, Pope Francis has been, I think, trying to create just like more space in the church. And that's why I say it's it's good. Like Pope Francis is not the radical Marxist pope that some people want him to be. But he is like making it more. Uh, he's creating some more pockets for people to be like, well, maybe we could talk about Marxism and also still be Catholics, you know, and not like feel the need to sort of close those kind of doors of conversation. So 
I think, you know, the word that characterizes Francis's episcopate or papacy is uh, is dialogue. That's what it comes down to with all the advantages and disadvantages that that term implies. So I think coming from, you know, the global south, inheriting the situation of two popes that were not very interested in dialogue and sort of turning those two things around has really been the the kind of like maybe for me the biggest like broad strokes general takeaways and it's from that out of which like everything else kind of follows the encyclicals the reforms that he's made in the church uh the waves that he's made in the church they all kind of stem from those two things cool that's great if you had to if you had to pick a handful of things that you think that pope francis has done that are good and interesting and like kind of worthy people's attention for people who don't know anything about this guy uh, what what would they be like? What are the what are the noteworthy uh, slam dunks from this guy, from Pope Francis? <laughs> right. All right. Uh, that's a great question. Um, I think infrastructurally, Pope Francis is really doing something different in the way that the church understands itself globally and even is like managed in a material way. So, for example, um, pretty recently in the last well, the last year actually, but kind of. There's been some events leading up to it. Pope Francis has changed what's called the Curia, which is kind of like the big administrative apparatus that surrounds the Pope. Um, that the Curia kind of took on intentionally like a very bureaucratic structure. It was very medieval intentionally. Um, and that was a kind of John Paul II thing that he really relied on the Curia and empowered it. And it was a sort of sprawling um giant monolithic beast there's like if you read like crabby priests or talk to crabby priests they'll have a lot to say about the curia um pope francis has uh changed that in a big way uh in fact he completely renamed all these offices changed how they're distributed their authority is different and now they're dicasteries which is like i don't know a more chill term i guess <laughs> for lack of a better word uh so that's like a big infrastructural change um, he's also trying to push this vision in the church around uh, synodality, which is always framed as like walking together. But the idea is that it's a more participatory understanding of Catholicism, and it tries to affirm a more mutual relationship between, for example, bishops and lay people or men and women. Um, he's trying to build like a more uh, democratic space in the church, and he wants that to be a kind of you know, managerial change as well, which is pretty significant. And maybe the the third and, and final thing is that in a kind of longevity stance, he has now appointed, I think, more than 60% of the voting cardinals who would vote in the next papal conclave if Pope Francis, um, I hope he doesn't, but if he died or resigned very suddenly, uh, it would be his electors who would be the majority people. So at this stage, like the Francis vision of the church, I think people sort of maybe don't don't understand how big of a deal all that very boring stuff is, you know, like the Game of Thrones style stuff that's happening behind the scenes. Like um, Pope Francis, I think, is like set, trying at least to set up a change that is going to outlast his papacy, which whether or not that is true is pretty up in the air. I mean, Vatican II <laughs> had a hard time and that was an even bigger deal. But anyway, all that to say, I think if you don't know anything about Pope Francis, that is something to to kind of understand that probably wouldn't be obvious if you weren't on the inside, that he is like actively sort of, 
you know, upending some pretty established stuff in ways that are also making some people very upset and welcoming certain people into the conversation who've been like pushed out of it for a long time. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, So again, as an outsider to this conversation, something that does strike me about Pope Francis in the in the long run, right, as like (laughs) on his report card from the last 10 years um, or something that seems significant to me is that within his encyclicals it's not like theology or philosophy i mean it's both those things for sure right but it's like not just that he pays a lot of attention to questions about economics in like pretty rigorous ways i think when it Mm -hmm. comes to like morality to me that seems significant and i think maybe it would be significant to other people (laughs) as i was cutting together those uh, (laughs) stupid clips at the very beginning of this episode um i cut this piece out but uh there was a a comment from the last person uh the last the last clip is from andrew napoleon Napoletano, who is like a Fox News commentator. Anyways, he said that the the previous two popes, they've really stuck to philosophy and theology and in, in their encyclicals. But this pope, he's he's wilding out. He's got all kinds of things to say about economics. What's significant about that in, in your professional Catholic opinion? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's actually true to an extent. Um, I think like it's true and it's not true. So maybe I'll I'll say both. It's true insofar as like So when Pope Francis first became Pope, there was uh, an encyclical that Pope Benedict had not finished. And so Francis, like, finished it and put his name on it. Um, And how much of it is Francis and how much of it is Benedict, who really knows? But if you read that and then you read Laudato Si, like, you'll see a world of difference. And the thing that I always point to is if you just look at the citations alone, like, go all the way to the bottom and look at all the footnotes, uh, Benedict is constantly quoting, like, Nietzsche and Holderlin, you know, like German philosophers and poets. Um, You get this real sense. I mean, he was a theology professor, right? So you get a sense that he's trying to, like, engage at that level. And John Paul II, not as academic as Benedict, for sure, but certainly drawing from, like, a particular uh, Thomistic and Catholic tradition intentionally. Pope Francis, uh, all of his citations, footnotes, for the most part, are like other bishops' conferences. (laughs) He's like, yeah, the Latin Americans, like, they said this about the environment. And anyway, like, people in the Philippines, they had to say this about it. Uh, The United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, they said this about what's going on. And what you get, I think, with that kind of, like, citational arrangement is a real affirmation that the whole church is, like, speaking or kind of pointing in a certain direction, So already from his first encyclical, he's affirming, I guess, that like it's not just his vision that is going to cast, you know, the church's teaching on ecology. He wants to like bring in other stuff. So that's true. At the same time, it's not like he's illiterate or like uninterested in philosophy, which is a way that sometimes people characterize Pope Francis. Yeah. And I think that is also racist. (laughs) Like (laughs) people will be like, oh, these, uh, you know, these illustrious Europeans, like, they're so good at thinking about philosophy. And here's this guy from Argentina who, like, oh, he's the people's pope. He doesn't know anything about philosophy, but he's, like, pastoral. And I think that is not true. Like, it's just that his philosophical touchstones are different. So he cites, like, Michel de Certeau. He cites Paul Ricoeur. Maybe tellingly, he cites more French people than Germans. I don't know what that has to say or, or, or means. Um, he cites a lot of Jesuit theologians, unsurprising, since he is a Jesuit. Uh, so, you know, it's just like a matter of maybe trying to figure out why Francis is doing this or that rather than like making a hard distinction between, you know, he's the unacademic one as opposed to these other ones who were like 
more into the tradition or stuffier, you know? So people on the right will be like, they were more grounded in the tradition and people on the left will be like, Oh, they were out of touch. And I think that's just kind of like, probably not the distinction actually that's going on in either case. Okay, cool. So we have some of the big like strokes, the broad strokes of Pope Francis papacy. Right. But now we're 10 years out, all that stuff it's happened. It's great. Uh, some of it's not great and that's okay. Um, but uh, I, I guess, how are people talking about it, Dean? I've read a few articles about this, but uh, what's what's your take? Or I guess, what was your go-to to figure out what what's up with uh, Pope Francis at 10 years? Yeah, I mean, for me, the first person I always look at is Leonardo Boff, a uh, Brazilian liberation theologian, one of the best, um, one of the original ones. He has a pretty active blog. He also wrote a book about Pope Francis pretty early on and Francis of Assisi, which is cool because Boff was a Franciscan priest for a long time. So he's like into it. He's into the Francis vision. And uh, he's the first person that I looked at. And then, you know, you read whatever, a handful of journalists and reporters. Was there anything that you were seeing, Matt, that was kind of like coming across your feed or people that maybe you were like, oh, I'll figure out what that person has to say? Uh, nobody good. I was not even really aware of this uh, particular discourse until I saw the Ross Duthid article from the New York mm-hmm. Times. And I read that one. Um, and we'll talk about it in a minute. I don't like it. It's very silly, <laughs> but let's talk about Leonardo Boff first. Let's get off on the right foot and then get off on the wrong foot. <laughs> Great. So let me read um, this couple of paragraphs quickly from Boff's blog. Um, his tenure post, it's not very detailed. You could probably, if you know a thing or two about Boff, like there's nothing new in it, you'll have read every sentence probably (laughs) somewhere else. Um, But it does maybe summarize what he thinks about it in a way that is handy. So he says this. um, March 13, the church celebrated the 10th anniversary of Pope Francis's pontificate. It's the first time in the history of the church that a pope has been elected outside the galaxy of European Christianity. And rightly so, because the vitality of the gospel message has taken root in the extra-European cultures in which the numerical majority of Catholics live. The most important uh, characteristic of his pontificate was the new atmosphere created within the Christian community worldwide. We're coming out of a long winter of the last popes, and a spring has begun. Doctrine no longer predominates, but the concrete life of faith. There's no more fear and condemnations, but great freedom of expression and participation— especially for women who occupy important positions within the Vatican. That point, by the way, contestable by other women, (laughs) as you could guess. Um, But it is true that Pope Francis has appointed a lot of women to prominent Vatican positions, which is like a marked departure from his predecessors. So giving Boff some credit, too. Um, So lots more that Boff says. But I think that these two things are pretty important, actually. So the the bit about... um, the majority of Catholics living in the global South is true. Uh, Christianity is actually like exploding in the global South, especially Africa, and it is declining in the global North. So, you know, one thing that Boff has said uh, all throughout Francis's papacy is like, it just makes sense that you should have a Pope from a place where most people are Catholic, (laughs) as opposed to like the place where people are just not interested anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, And also the sense that, Now there's this period of dialogue. I think that really matters for Boff to say specifically because Boff had been silenced for a year by the Vatican under John Paul II with Ratzinger as his right-hand person, Ratzinger being Pope Benedict uh, eventually. So I think, you know, for Boff to at least feel like there's a springtime in the church, some fresh air, 
that is a pretty encouraging thing. Like from a guy who, you know, was on the wrong end of the Vatican, <laughs> like uh, several decades ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's cool. Um, that makes a lot of sense. And I think kind of is a, a clarifying note. Let's talk about some bad stuff for a minute. <laughs> Dean, have you you've read this Ross Duthit article? I assume I'm not just bringing it to you. I know it, right? Sad to admit that I have. Okay, great. Okay, so if you haven't read it, that's fine. Uh, Ross Dutha is a weird conservative guy uh, who's Catholic and writes for the New York Times. And he wrote an article called Pope Francis Decade of Division, (laughs) which you can already (laughs) kind of sense where it's going. The thing that Ross Dutha does in this article is mostly just trying to blame Pope Francis for like the culture war that's going on. And I think that's weird, a weird move to make. But I'll, I'll kind of like lay it out here in this article because I think it's actually a really interesting thing to see how people on the right are thinking about Pope Francis. So I'll start here with like what is the thesis of this piece and we can kind of just walk through it, I guess. And uh, I've, uh, I've got a few uh, high points or low points, depending on your perspective. So uh, Duthit says, the problem is just resistance from conservative Catholics, right? That's what everyone thinks. The problem with Francis is really just, you know, it's on the conservative end of the spectrum, right? And he says, especially American conservative Catholics. Those are the people who are always grumpy about Pope Francis. But what Ross Duthit kind of comes to posit is, what if the problem is actually that Pope Francis is, like, ineffectual overall, and he himself is, like, stoking the culture war? (laughs) And... I think that's a pretty wild thing to think because, I mean, like we've been saying, I think that Pope Francis has like is is kind of a media pope and he's got sort of a a renewed moral vision uh, that I think a lot more people than previous might be paying attention to. Right. I think like Pope Francis has a lot more uh, weight with non-Catholics than than maybe Ratzinger. Mm -hmm. That's my that's my assumption. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's that's how it feels to me, at least. Anyways, just a a weird thing to think that, like, Pope Francis is the one that's doing it, not, like, (laughs) the larger media apparatus of, like, right-wing outrage, but okay. So anyways, Duthit goes on to say that, uh, seen now at its 10-year milestone, this pontificate hasn't just faced inevitable resistance because of its zeal or reform, it has needlessly multiplied controversies and exacerbated divisions. So Ross Duthit, he argues that Pope Francis is, like, framed as a reformer. But he has mostly spent his time, like, taking shots at the right while not giving the left anything at all. And, you know, there's maybe something to that, I guess. Like, uh, Francis is not giving, like, a lot of sweeping reforms, like, around a few topics. But the topics that Ross Duthit picks to, to, to demonstrate Pope Francis's failure as a reformer, I think, is pretty weird. <laughs> Some pretty weird stuff. <laughs> so Duthit says that Francis has come uh, hard for the Latin Mass, and he's... Um, you know, I, I mean, Dean, you can probably speak more that speak to that more than I can, but um, you know, outlawing the Latin Mass in a lot of places and cracking down on that traditionalism that uh, people on the right love so very much, I guess, and in doing so, made room for Catholics um, who have gotten a divorce. Right, that's another big piece of the puzzle uh, that Ross Duthit wants to pull out here. That's like the the concession that he's made for the people on the left, but he's also not dealing the left like all of the things that they want, like ending the rule of celibacy for priests. Again, like he, he's picking all of these like extremely niche things and leaving a lot of things on the table and, and not even mentioning like Pope Francis's sort of position on, on synodality or on, on being a Latin American Pope, a, a Pope that includes the entire church or that has something to say about colonialism. <laughs> you know, none of that comes out in this article because I think that's beyond Duthit's perspective and horizon. I, that's mm-hmm. not something he even considers as like a left or right issue because he's, you know, at the end of the day, just like 
a very weird conservative. <laughs> so I think all of this is like a pretty out there claim for like a lot of reasons, because I don't know how you can really blame like the ongoing culture war on Francis himself. He's like a media figure and that's something. The larger political discourse in the U.S. like is going on regardless of the Pope. And I think that's just bizarre. But like I said, it also ignores a lot of like the actual leftist ish stuff that Francis has done, especially with regard to capitalism, climate change, imperialism, colonialism. I mean, we talked not too long ago about uh, Pope Francis's whole position on Africa, right? The hands off Africa episode. And, and that is completely, like I said, outside of uh, Duthit's criticism, which I think is really strange, right? Because if, mm -hmm. if your whole point is to say that Pope Francis is like, he's taking pot shots at the right and he's not really giving the left anything, but you ignore all of the things that he's done and said that are like legitimately serving sort of like the leftist branch of Catholics and Christians. It just seems like uh, Duthit could have written a better article had he actually included that stuff, <laughs> but mm -hmm. <laughs> he just didn't because... I don't know. He's just a weirdo. I, it's such a hard, a hard thing to parse out <laughs> because of his weird selective ignorance. Yeah, I mean, so much of this is, I think, projection <laughs> and like mm -hmm. pretty classical sort of Freudian stuff going on here. Um, but uh, I agree. I mean, it is endlessly frustrating for so many reasons. There's a, a passage actually that I wanted to read in it where he says this. Um, consider a counterfactual scenario where the Pope's early months played out identically. The gestures of inclusivity and welcome, the famous who am I to judge, but thereafter his approach was focused, strategic, designed to seek change, but also to maintain unity. Mm -hmm. This could have meant, for instance, pushing through the changes sought by liberal Catholics that are easiest to square with existing doctrine, like relaxing the rule of celibacy for priests or even allowing female deacons, while simultaneously making strong efforts to reassure conservatives that the church wasn't just surrendering, surrendering its commitments or dissolving its teachings about sex and marriage. Um, it is the weirdest passage ever because, like, that is what happened. <laughs> that is, like, basically what Francis did, except that he didn't even give in those left uh, points. Like, you know, the criticism that you could make of Francis is that actually he was too focused on preserving unity, didn't push through these other reforms early on, and he coddled the right, quite frankly, in the beginning of his papacy. And it's only pretty recently that he's been, like, using a, a harder stick. And I think that's also because Francis has rightly come to understand that, like, the right is just not going to meet his sort of gestures of charity mm -hmm. with, like, an equal reaction, you know? <laughs> so I think, like, in in uh, Ross Duthit's counterfactual example, Pope Francis is actually more radical than he was in the beginning <laughs> of his papacy. And, like, Duthat still would have written the same thing in the show. Sure, column. yeah. I think that makes sense and is, is kind of illustrative of the point, though, right? That, like, it, it's not that Pope Francis is waging a culture war. It's, like, that the people on the right are waging a culture war. And there's nothing mm -hmm. anyone that can say any, – any, there's nothing anyone can say that will, like, stop them from doing that, right? Because it's not – Yeah. It's not really about any person or anything. It's just, like – it's about having grievances and being able to air them and, like, feeling good about that i mean i don't know mm -hmm. at the end of the day it's nothing i guess is what i'm trying to say yeah and i mean in terms of popes who are guilty of divisions uh like i'm sorry but jp2 and benedict have done more to divide the church oh john paul II, the, the guy who literally waved his finger in the face of Ernesto <laughs> cardinal yeah that's not a divisive pope i don't think Exactly. Or like Benedict, who actively waded into culture war problems as Pope and even as Pope Emeritus was like saying all kinds of 
honestly pretty bonkers stuff <laughs> about like sexuality and like the essential Christian roots of Europe and all this like pretty messed up, you know, like basic sort of culture war stuff that actually drove a ton of people out of the church was a huge problem. Um, and I think that is pretty telling, right? That like, this is the, the division is coming from inside the house, Ross. Like, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Not coming from Pope Francis. Yeah, I think that's good. I uh, guess that's why I like that article so much, or I don't like it. I think that's why I wanted to talk about it on this podcast, because it is really illustrative of the brainworms of conservatism and the way that, like you said, the the division's coming from inside the house, and uh, but, but they can't quite figure that out, uh, because if they did, they would recognize that they, <laughs> that they are like whiny babies who can't be sated by anything. <laughs> yeah, you know what's funny, too? So... You know, I was reading this and then I was thinking to myself, like, so this is a pundit perceiving Catholicism through pundit brain, which is never true. Just like, to be fair, neither is like the academic understanding of it or even podcaster brain or whatever. And Catholicism is a big, weird religion full of, you know, millions and millions and millions of people who think very differently from you and everybody else. And so trying to say anything about Catholicism is pretty hard. So I was like, all right, I'm going to find some data and like figure out, I don't know, how is Pope Francis divisive? And I did find two great Pew Research uh, pieces about it. So one from early into Francis's papacy in 2014. It was a, a global poll. So, you know, trying to take data from a variety of continents. And uh, they found that in 2014, 60% of people around the world had a favorable view of Pope Francis. 28% had no rating. They just didn't rate it favorable or unfavorable. And only 11% in the whole world had an unfavorable rating in 2014. So that's a global thing from the beginning of the papacy. And I was like, okay, well, you know, to be fair, like 10 years is a long time. Maybe it's dipped. Um, I couldn't find any more global data, but I did find that in the United States, uh, the data from 2021 Impu still puts Pope Francis at an 82% favorable rating. Makes sense. So like, yeah, of course. I'm sorry, but it's just not divided. Ross, you're the one who's divided. <laughs> that's it. That's it. You're in the minority, my guy. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's a really important piece, though, for being a conservative in the United States at this point. I mean, I'm sure it's probably the case for Canada as well. But I hear it from from people all the time, though, that like, you know, the left is so divisive, media is dividing us and so on. But like when it comes to the right, it is literally like that's what's driving people is the sort of grievance culture of uh, of being on the right, of finding like these weird things to nitpick at people about. A great example of someone who got paid a lot of money to write an article to do just that. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Uh, would that we all had such an opportunity. Yeah, for real. Okay, that's enough. That's enough of that for now. Let's put that away. And um, let's talk about something different. So uh, the National Catholic Reporter, a, a great publication, someone who I'm sure is paying uh, people far less than Ross Dothit, uh to write <laughs> these articles. Um, but that's not because they want to. Right. <laughs> to be clear. <laughs> no, exactly. Exactly. Right. Anyways, there's an article that Dean and I were both kind of like uh, peeping a bit uh, before this episode called Injustice and Crime, Reviewing Pope Francis Apologies for Church's Role in Colonialism, which is, I think, actually a really enlightening piece because... I mean, okay, colonialism, it's a big topic. <laughs> you might be aware. <laughs> Expansive, uh, multifaceted, it can mean a lot of different things. And what I like about this article in particular is that it does lay out, like, all of the different things that colonialism can mean, like, from, like, you know, the actual act of colonialism to extractivism 
to gender and sexuality. I think it's great. So anyways, a great piece from the National Catholic Reporter. And I think it's worth kind of talking through to maybe demonstrate the ways that all those things that, that Ross Duth is, is missing, right? All the things that he's left on the table because he doesn't even like think about them as like political mm-hmm. ideas or problems or whatever. Yeah, we should also mention, sorry, uh, just by way of... Uh... Uh, affirming who wrote it. I don't know exactly how to pronounce her name, so don't take my word for it, but Aleja Aleha Hertzler-McCain is her last name. Um, she is great. Uh, it's a great article. You should all read it. And also, uh, she interviews this extremely cool person, um, Valentina Napolitano, who was on my dissertation uh, doctoral committee. Yeah. So, you know, it's a great article because uh, she likes me, so I like her. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Uh, it is. It's good reporting. It's important work. And a really it's like cl- clearly written by somebody who actually understands um, politics and religion uh, and not Ross with it. So there we go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, to, to illustrate this point even further, uh, she starts off with an interview with the Congolese Jesuit Father Jacques Nzumbu, who we've talked about in previous episodes uh, before when we've talked about extractivism in Africa. Also, if you read my Sojourner's piece uh, from a few months ago about extractivism and uh, cobalt in the Congo, this is the person that I also interviewed. So it's great. Uh, So she writes, Congolese Jesuit father Jacques Nzumbu told uh, National Catholic Reporter that Francis is the first pope who is facing seriously the problems of colonialism. Throughout his 10 years as pope, Francis has denounced continuing forms of colonialism. And again, we're talking about this this phrase expansively. To get more into it, she writes, Most recently, when he arrived at the Democratic Republic of Congo in February, Francis said, Stop choking Africa. It's not a mine to be stripped or a terrain to be plundered, referring to the exploitation of Congo's natural and mineral resources by countries such as China and the United States. So, so there you go. Um, I think this is an important piece because uh, this is the evidence of like Francis doing things that are, um, you know, beyond the culture war, <laughs> beyond not delivering on celibacy <laughs> for priests or something. This is actually the work that Francis is taking up. And I, I think Im- important to kind of like get the scope and texture of like what he's doing here out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Um, I mean, we'll say more about the colonialism piece in a minute, too. But uh, it is so complicated, right? Like Pope Francis has, I think, been like a strong voice about colonialism in some places and a weaker voice in others. And just for example, like when he went to Bolivia uh, pretty early on, um, he had a an apology for the church's role in col- colonialism in the Americas that I thought was pretty good. Like. It can be improved. They can all be improved. But as far as what you're going to get from the Pope, it was like better than I would have expected. Um, And you hear a lot of commentary about his opposition to colonialism from the global South. Like people in Latin America are always talking about it. Um, People in Africa, I think even more, it seems to me, are also always talking about it. Um, It's getting play in the Philippines and other places, too. Um, so, you know, like he's being recognized in the global South, I think as a voice who is trying to empower that stance an anti-colonial stance. Um, but I think he also is still maybe struggling to, uh, (laughs) to bring the church on board. Um, and there was a really telling, uh, comment from Laurel Potter, who we've had on this podcast in the past. Um, she's also interviewed in here and has a lot of interesting things to say. Uh, she says, for the church to really assume decoloniality, the whole people of God have to assume decoloniality. Uh, and what she was trying to sort of say is, you know, like the Amazon document, the document that came out of the Amazon Synod um, really didn't have like, I don't know, maybe everything that people would have expected in it. 
And I think that Laurel is pointing to a real, uh, a real limitation of Pope Francis, which is that he can't just like, I don't know, unilaterally decide all kinds of things. And, you know, I live in Canada and I feel like that was especially on display when he was here in Canada. Uh, his apology for residential schools, which he tried like three or four different times, um, never really seemed to like take on the gravity and depth of the culpability of the church in Canada, which is something that the Bishop's Conference in Canada has been very resistant to affirm, uh, as opposed to like the Bishop's Conference in Latin America, which has been talking about decoloniality for a long time, right? So I think it's kind of also really interesting to sort of plot Pope Francis that way, that uh, as uh, Father Jacques says, right, he is the a pope who is really facing seriously the problem of colonialism, but is also like getting like thwarted by his own church, <laughs> unsurprisingly, uh, and in some cases doesn't have the ability or courage or however we might judge it to, uh, you know, to overcome that obstacle. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And the what Laurel says in that article is really helpful, I think, too, for people like outside of Catholicism, because I mean, I have no idea what is happening in the cultural imagination of like Protestants when they think about the Pope. But like the Pope is not like the king of the Catholic Church or something like who can make unilateral (laughs) decisions. I mean, the Catholic Church is an incredibly complex organism that has all kinds of different constituencies, like pushing and pulling different directions. So Mm. I, I think that, I mean, what Laurel says makes a lot of sense there, right? That like Francis is like, you know, doing some things, but in, in some other areas, like waiting for the rest of the church. And that makes sense. Well, lots of other great voices in this article, too, that kind of speak to this, too. For example, there's some good quotes from Tanya Avila Meneses, a Quechua theologian from Oruro, Bolivia, uh, who praises Francis' teachings on extractivism as a form of colonialism and points to the uh, Carita Amazonia, the synodal document. Um, that is really cool. Good to point out. Um, lots of, uh, as I said, other great commentary on the colonialism bit in this. Um, but Matt, also, there's a really cool angle, um, an important angle on uh, LGBT issues and how those even relate to the colonization piece of Francis in a more troubling way. Uh, do you want to walk us through that piece? That was something you off mic. You were like, we got to pull this in. I agree. Yeah. I mean, I think it's important because, listen, like we can go on all day and like pull out all these great quotes or examples where Pope Francis does something cool around, you know, development or colonialism or extractivism. And that's great and important stuff. But there are also places where Pope Francis definitely does not do does not do a slam dunk. In fact, he drops the ball completely. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And I don't love that. That's not great. He should just not do it. So anyways, uh, this article from National Catholic Reporter interviews this person named Danny Dempsey, who is an associate professor of religious studies at Mount Allison University in New Brunswick, Canada. All kinds of great Canadians in this uh, article. Um, (laughs) uh, Dan Dempsey studied Francis's use of this particular phrase that uh, comes up in some of Francis's writings on LGBTQ issues. And that phrase is ideological colonization, which he uses to refer to feminism, trans inclusion, and uh, queer and same-sex attraction inclusion. Which you don't love to see. That's not a win. <laughs> like I said, that's... he just used it uh, a few days yeah. ago. I guess after reading a Rusty Thoughts column, feeling like you need to mid- <laughs> make some overtures to the right. Yeah, that's right. Finally, he's giving in to Ross. So the article goes on to say that uh, given Francis' understanding of colonialism, his well-publicized statements of outreach and welcome to LGBTQ plus people don't sit well with Dempsey. Because the academic says Francis has not changed official church policy with regard to gender identity and non-heterosexual relationships. And then a a bit more here, too, that I think is worth reading. This is a, a quote. 
that queer and trans people and women and other gender minorities haven't suffered enough to warrant the intention of institutional social doctrinal change to me suggests a level of insincerity, at least in fact, if not in theory, said Dempsey. I think a pretty good way to put it, actually. Dempsey hopes to see the church frame these issues as a, quote, preferential option for the marginalized and that the church will begin to take seriously the suffering of some of these humans. Catholic women and scholars also critiqued Francis' position on gender and sexuality as confusing or inconsistent given the Pope's other anti-colonial work. However, other women said that Francis is limited by the vigorous opposition that he faces. Um, I mean, probably all of those things are true. But I guess the thing that I think is really interesting is that Francis is like this um, this opponent of colonialism, right? And so that makes sense on the one hand, right? Extractivism, like actual sort of like colonial relationships in terms of like political economy. He's like savvy about those kinds of things. But then like when it comes to other things, he like categorizes them as colonization, like feminism or like the inclusion of trans people, which is bad. (laughs) I've got to say, I don't like that at all. This is good to kind of pull this out here because it does show the limits of Francis as a pope and, and like where his, I think, moral voice maybe ends or becomes extremely complicated. I guess what I'm trying to say here is that like some of his thoughts on colonization and like political economy are really, I think, inspiring and interesting and good and uh, other places extremely confused and bad. Um, Mm -hmm. and that, and there you go. (laughs) That's my, that's my article (laughs) for the New York times. Uh, I'll read it and I'll pay you a lot of money to write it. Um, I agree. You know, the other irony is like in some ways, Pope Francis in some places, like he even understands the ideological colonization of the Catholic church and we'll call it out. Like there are some great passages in Corita Amazonia, uh, some other places too, where he'll talk about like, you know, the difference between the Christian faith and cultural forms. Like there's no reason that uh, church has to look like Europe everywhere. Like people have their own thing, their own tradition, their own music, their own instruments and so on. Right. Like really embracing that there can be a plurality and wanting to, uh, yeah, to, to recognize and name that there's a colonial force that tries to cover that up. Uh, But the irony is like when it comes to sexuality or gender, like, those are largely colonial impositions in the first place, right? Like, uh, like two spirit people, right. In indigenous, uh, communities in, in Canada and the U S for instance, like those are gender expressions that tried to be stamped out by European colonization. Um, you see the same thing all over the place with, uh, Christian engagements in the Pacific and in Latin America and Africa, you know, like, surprise, not everybody is like an English Victorian uh, in the way that they think about their sex and gender. And I think like the irony of Pope Francis saying it's ideological colonization to start talking about uh, sex and gender minorities is so I think (laughs) it's annoying, not only because it's like a bad phrase, but it's annoying because it is like literally the opposite is the case, (laughs) right? Like it's a, it's ideological colonization that people have reduced everything down to these extremely small buckets of like ways you can be a person. And that sucks. Yeah, exactly. I guess that's why it's so weird because it's just like sociologically not true or anthropologically not true. (laughs) I just like don't really understand the the choice of language. It just seems wrong on purpose (laughs) and I don't Mm -hmm. like get it. Yeah, and it is. I mean, it's wrong on purpose, I think, because he maybe is following the Duthot advice, despite uh, Duthot's inability to see that, that he's like trying to sort of give a little bit to the right here and there, you know, like uh, I think that is unfortunate. And I think it's a sort of um, hazard or liability of Francis's approach, uh, the diplomatic kind of dialogue approach that it sort of forces you into those compromises in ways that 
have like real consequences for actual human beings, right. you know, like uh, on the one hand, it's all kind of like courtly games and <laughs> trying to sort out like how to, you know, keep the family together or whatever. But like some people are going to be thrown under the bus so that like some bishops can feel more comfortable. And I think that sucks. Yeah. I mean, especially in 2023, when we're seeing all kinds of other crackdowns on LGBTQ people and especially trans people, you can't do this, <laughs> you know? Yeah. There, well, there's just like and so also, much skin in the game that you can't ignore or you can't just walk away from it and say like, well, sorry, I'm just I'm just the Pope. I can't uh, I can't say these <laughs> things or whatever. That's not OK. Totally. And not only in the U.S., but even before that, like, you know, I mean, always, <laughs> always uh, trans people have been targeted, LGBT people have been targeted and so on. But like it, being a pope from the global south, I mean, in like Africa, it is like literally a death sentence, you know, to be gay in certain places. And like those are things that Pope Francis is acquainted with. And I mean, he is obviously trying to like say something that denounces that kind of violence toward LGBT people and also in a way that is markedly different from his predecessors who That's were like true. afraid yeah. to say anything positive but at the same time like he's reproducing certain homophobic and transphobic uh, attitudes nevertheless that do give oxygen to those very kinds of things so you know it's one of these kind of two steps forward one steps back is the optimistic way to put it but it's like who gets crushed under the boot <laughs> when the steps are moving you know right. like that's a, a pretty big problem it is a huge problem i mean this kind of thing comes up in the anglican church people will always kind of carry water for anti-lgbtq ideas <laughs> language rhetoric policies because and they'll and they'll do it on on the behalf of the the church of the global south right because in africa this type of thing is unacceptable so if we were to be completely open and affirming that would alienate the church in in africa or wherever else in the global south and that is such a frustrating way mm. to think about it because there are reasons why lgbtq politics are so tense in africa and mm -hmm. it's because of the structures of all of these churches who make it so right like it's it's mm -hmm. not like these things are immovable or just matter of fact they can be changed and they have been changed right the mm -hmm. attitudes towards lgbtq people in the global south have been like adjusted in, in a great part by the church uh not just the catholic church but you know the protestant churches as well mm -hmm. so just it's just frustrating the whole thing is very frustrating don't do this don't be like this um, definitely don't give any <laughs> any quarter to people on the right because they don't care. <laughs> uh, even if you do say these things, it's not like you're going to like satiate their need to complain um, about cultural Marxism or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just it's a losing battle either way. Yeah, exactly. Well, as we're getting to the end here, I think one thing we do have to mention, too, is the opposition to Francis, uh, which is more than do you thought. Um, I think that has been a pretty interesting piece of Francis's papacy that the right is really coming out of the woodwork, I think, against Pope Francis. There are some major historical touchstones. There have been times, for example, when like um, a handful of bishops have presented a dubia to Pope Francis, a list of things that make them mad. And uh, just, I don't know, expect Pope Francis to be like, OK, you're right. <laughs> like, who knows? Uh, guess what? He didn't say that. Um, and uh, the right has, I think, started to metastasize into some pretty disgusting and like, in some cases, outright fascist forms of uh, Catholic opposition to Pope Francis. Um, during the Amazon Synod, there was a ton of racism, especially against indigenous peoples who were at the Vatican for that synod. Uh, you saw the same thing even when Francis gave a pretty weak apology here in Canada, just uh, a huge sort of 
um, frothing kind of uh, right wing response to that sort of thing. And I think that like, it's really important to track that as well. Um, the, you know, like Pope Francis, I do think that he has made some pretty radical overtures, right? Like he has said things about our, the Catholic tradition of uh, private property being not inviolable at any point in history, right? Like that's a pretty radical thing to say, uh, those kinds of things. But at the same time, like, I think there is this sort of like the right has been given so much power funding energy by the previous two papacies and by also a certain Catholic establishment in general. The Pope Francis is now like starting to unplug and undo and sort of, you know, he's actively removing certain people from positions of power and the right is starting to like also organize a bit of an offensive against Pope Francis. Um, They have their own media networks. They have their own like, popular figures and so on. And so I think like, you know, none of that excuses Pope Francis's like, you know, failure to be a prophetic voice um, for LGBT people. Um, But I do think that like, it is important to recognize that Francis is like, his job is absurd, like trying to hold together everyone from like, Leonardo Boff <laughs> writing something in Brazil to Ross Dutha writing like something bizarre in the New York Times to like a, you know, a fascist like Catholic in Italy who loves going to Lord of the Rings camp or whatever. Like there's a lot going on in the church. And I think like that, at least for me, that 10 years that Francis has had has been pretty remarkable that he's actually been able to pull it off as far as he's gotten without any like major... I don't know, schism <laughs> one way or the other. Like that's pretty, uh, it, it's a testament maybe to his diplomatic efforts. And again, for, for better and for worse, but um, pretty interesting as kind of like a, I don't know, inside baseball, like institution watcher. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so I think that's good. I, I think we've done it right. We've accomplished the goal. We've talked about the way that people are talking about Pope Francis in 10 years and we've kind of, given our own take. Um, Pope Francis has some interesting and prophetic things to say about economics and about colonialism, but also he could be a lot better on all kinds of other things, like all of this very bad language about gender ideology. Um, Not a fan of that. So Pope Francis is uh, a positive force, but also could be even positiver if he just listened to us. (laughs) And uh, that's something to consider Pope Francis. I'm sure he's going to be listening to this on his next jog to get a pizza in the Vatican. Yeah. <laughs> is is he a jogger? Is that is that true? I don't think he's a jogger, but he does like pizza. So I'm oh. just trying to imagine what just... would really get him out there in the streets of Rome. <laughs> he's just like me. <laughs> exactly. Uh, people don't know if I'm a jogger or not, but they do know that I like pizza. <laughs> it's a great brand. Uh, and uh, jogging's overrated anyways. Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Magnificast. If you join us there for, I don't know, like $2 or something, you get some uh, access to our Behind the Paywall Discord server where you can meet all of your new best friends and see pictures of their dogs and uh, talk about, I don't know, all kinds of other very weird things. Someone uh, shared a great website where you can buy extremely cheap Catholic medals recently. So if you're into that sort of thing, you can find that there. (laughs) It's great. A great community uh, full of interesting people doing stuff. (laughs) And we love it. (laughs) Um, You can also get access to our behind the 
paywall podcast called The Lock-In, which you maybe have uh, become acquainted with last week. Um, or maybe not if you didn't listen to the episode. That's fine, too. Uh, but it's good. You should do it. Support us on Patreon if you can. If you can't, that's fine, too. Whatever. We're not mad about it. Uh, at least not right now. Our intro music is by Mario Armstrong. Our outro music is by The Logical Spoon. And we'll see you next week. I don't want to get up for church in the morning. Church in the morning. Souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday There'll be no dam between us and our Lord Jackson, you keep your hoods up You keep your hoods up And you stay up late Jackson, you keep your hoods up Where you keep your hoods up and you stay up late Oh, don't mind a cold night But we might mind if you leave too soon So come on now, it's still early At least I would have